How do our brains sort out ethical and moral dilemmas? What can neuroimaging tell us? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Clint Kiltz. Dr. Kiltz is currently Paul Jansen Professor and Vice Chair for Research for the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University. His current research program focuses on the application of multimodal in vivo brain imaging techniques to problem solving related to normal and abnormal human behavior. Welcome to ReachMD. Hi, Leslie. Thank you. Dr. Kiltz, what have you learned about human behavior using neuroimaging? Oh, that's a, that's a, a large question that has a long answer. I think in many ways you have to understand um, some of the history of how we've tried to, in more recent modern times, understand human behavior, both uh, normal and abnormal. I was trained in the late 70s and worked on, at the, on the faculty at Duke University in the Department of Psychiatry throughout the 80s. And the way we approached behavior at that time was largely from a neurochemical perspective. In other words, trying to understand how neurotransmitters, those chemicals in the brain that transmit information between cells, how they existed in the brain of postmortem individuals. In other words, looking for the, a biochemical footprint left behind of a diagnosis that may have occurred years or decades earlier, or perhaps studying neurochemistry in the cerebral spinal fluid or the blood and trying to infer from those what were the dynamics of neurotransmission in the brain. And as our technology evolved and our questions deepened in trying to understand behavior, we in many ways found that these approaches in the not too distant past were really inappropriate and overly crude to understand the complexities of human behavior. So being a gadgetologist... Um, <laughs> a gadgetologist. A gadgetologist. I love technology. And uh, in, I think, about 1990, when I was at Duke, I was introduced to a, a new scanner in the Department of Radiology, a positron emission tomograph, that in its, the first demonstration I saw was looking at someone simply uh, opening and closing their thumb and index finger in the scanner. And then uh, some days later, when we analyzed the data, we're looking at the motor cortex and the basal ganglia representation of hand movement. And the important thing for me was that this was an ongoing behavior that several days later I actually had images of an ongoing behavior that wasn't based in chemistry and wasn't based in postmortem or peripheral tissue assessments. So in many ways, from my thinking, and, and I'm, I think I can speak for the field here, these kinds of emerging technologies have greatly changed not just our ability to probe behavior, but the behaviors that we probe facets of, of highly evolved human behavior, like how we cognate, how we emote, how we reason, how we plan, how we sense, all became the subjects of imaging studies because we could place individuals in scanners, have them engage in tasks like sensory systems and motor systems, and have them reason, have them study at a perceptual level emotion, uh, emotional stimuli, and study how they developed an emotional response. And all of these could be rendered into statistically defined representations of changing brain activity interrogating the entire brain. And, and that, for myself in the field, has greatly changed what we consider to be the domain of study of, in behavioral sciences. Uh, there's really nothing that goes on at a behavioral level, conscious or unconscious, 
that can now escape a study with uh, with scanning technology. Now, with PET scanning, how far can you dial down? Well, different scanners have different limits of resolution, and we typically in scanner technology talk about spatial and temporal resolution. In other words, neurons fire in in sub-millisecond rates, and they uh, and when those neurons assemble their firing patterns into ongoing behavior and influence downstream patterns of neuronal activity. So we often like to study uh, neural activity at the smallest time scale possible. And right now, we're limited to about a second of integrated activity, which sounds like a very short period of time, but in terms of the, the activity lifetime of a neuron is actually quite long. But in many uh, of the behaviors we study, perhaps all of them, I really don't need, I think, an integration of signal that goes much below that. Mm-hmm. And the spatial domain, the microanatomy of the brain is very complex. And we know that even even well-defined areas of the brain, like the amygdala, have many subterritories. The frontal cortex has many, many functional and anatomical subterritories. So one of our goals is always to try and take the resolution of the scanner spatially down so we're studying activity in the smallest region possible. And right now, that is about one cubic millimeter, about a millimeter by millimeter by millimeter. And uh, there's a limit of resolution that we're living with right now, but we're always looking for combining imaging techniques, uh, which I think is probably going to be the way we'll overcome some of the uh, the resolution uh, limitations of scanners. And in doing so, by combining them, we're getting a much better spatial and temporal view of how neurally we organize complex behavior. Well, tell us about your recent work in this area. Well, I think I'm a, probably a good example of how the field of psychiatry has changed. And when you're, you know, you're telling our listeners of thinking like a psychiatrist, psychiatry is not your parents' psychiatry. It's evolved so much in the last 25 or 30 years in terms of, of being able to remit patients uh, rather than just, just uh, hope for a response in terms of characterizing that at a much greater level of understanding of the context of most diagnoses and the complexity of illness states that, that in which most psychiatric um, diagnoses are embedded. But we also are thinking in terms of a more elaborated view of behavior and not just behavior related to abnormal abnormalities that we organize as diagnostic groups, but thinking about human behavior in general. And so my recent career and the career of many people like myself that function in academic psychiatry has thought to move our our inquiries into many more complex areas of how and why humans behave. So me personally, I've been very interested in studying more in the fields of social neuroscience, in cognitive neuroscience, in affective neuroscience, uh, in cultural neuroscience and to move the field of neuroscience beyond the boundaries of psychiatric illness and into other domains of ongoing social functioning in society. So my recent work has focused in what would probably be considered to be arcane areas 20 years ago, but into the aspects of how we morally navigate our environment and also pairing up with other areas of study on, on academic centers like I work at, such as the business school and theology, and studying the uh, the neural basis of, of decision-making in very complex contexts. So I do work in preference choice. I do work in the interface of business and human behavior as it relates to neuroscience. I do work in moral decision-making and moral reasoning. And I also do programmatic work largely in and around patient populations that suffer from addiction, drug addiction. What does your work tell us about how we solve or how we sort out moral dilemmas? 
this is obviously a very complex area, and I would offer that moral decision-making, moral reasoning, and moral behavior in general is a form of social cognition. And by that I mean we're talking about complex human behaviors that are in response to and elicited by other individuals and are used to guide our behavior so we can exist in some level of social harmony. We became fascinated with the problem of what is the neural representation of complex moral behavior by association with other faculty here at Emory that were in the business school and the Candler School of Theology. These were individuals that were moral theorists, individuals that applied ethics and moral reasoning in contexts not related to psychiatry like business and business decision making. And so one aspect of the study was the enjoyment of bridging the fields of neuroscience and psychiatry into domains of intellectual pursuit on campuses like this that normally don't think in these, in these domains. The motivation for this study was really to the point that in reading a, a very early literature on the neural basis or the brain basis of moral behavior, it was the consensus of the group that most of the studies so far were heavy on neuroscience, but really light in paying attention to what the extent moral theories were of this time. So what we wanted to do was to study kind of a key aspect of moral behavior. And what we wanted to study was kind of the early stage processing of what, how does your brain handle the identification and their initial interpretive awareness of a moral conflict and how does it handle that moral dilemma differently than it would, say, a non-moral dilemma that was equally attention-grabbing and thought-provoking, like a strategic or tactical dilemma? And are there different areas of the brain that we use in supporting decision-making related to moral and non-moral decisions? And I suppose by studying moral decisions, um, you learn a lot about immoral actions as well. Oh, that's a very good point. That's exactly true, because this exercise for me, who, who I reside professionally in a, in a department of psychiatry, was largely to understand the, you know, and, and when, when I say normal, I'm, I'm considering a very, very broad definition of that term, but let's call it a general population sample as imaging subjects. But it's always, what is the inference I take from that study? that I can bring back to studying patient populations in psychiatry. And certainly the concept of immoral behavior does have many roots of diagnosis in psychiatry in and around largely personality disorders, the antisocial personality, the narcissistic personality, and so forth. And so one of the uh, intentions of this study was to apply its outcomes into patient populations of that nature. And have you been able to do that? Um, yes. We are now applying this type of work in uh, drug-addicted samples, which I wouldn't consider individuals with drug addictions to be immoral, but I do see them as having profound deficits in social cognitions, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and largely because the motivational properties of what drives our behaviors have been greatly changed by the drug addiction itself. So our first entry back into this area is really in drug addiction. But I also have colleagues here for which I, uh, I assist them in studies of personality disorders like the antisocial personality characteristic. Now, thinking that most of our listeners are not researchers and um, out there seeing patients every day, is there any way yet to translate what you've learned from these scans into clinical practice? Yeah, I think one of the hardest areas, and, and this was certainly a goal of the study, one of the hardest areas for us to articulate in terms of its, its brain basis and boundaries are really in the trait dimensions of personality. And this can be uh, the dimensional aspect of that we know to vary largely between us as individuals, 
like some of us are much more extroverted, while others of us are much more introverted, but we have very little understanding of how the brain codes those personality traits. And these traits often are much more identifying than even hair color or height, these changes as we age and grow. But our, our personality attributes are often, you know, the basis of friendships and the basis of recognition in many ways. So here are these core traits that define us in a very uh, key sense as being human that it, it always surprises me we have very little understanding of, mm-hmm. and also in the area of personality disorders. So in, me- in many ways, what we want to do is return this study to an initial, if you would, entry into trying to understand how the brain codes personality characteristics. Well, I'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Clint Kiltz. We have been discussing neuroimaging and social cognition. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. 